guys, Sideline Statsman here, and welcome to today's episode of the Pigskin Pulpit. On this episode, I'm talking about two things. One, the head coaching vacancies. The open spots, looking at who's the best fits maybe. We're going to talk about the hirings and even which one was unnecessary and which one was the most deserved. So basically, which one didn't need to happen and which one should have happened sooner. And then I'm going to go into the wild card playoffs, break it down every single game, and then from there, I'm giving you the ins and outs, the advantages, the disadvantages, and who I think is going to win. And at the end, I'm going to do the change my mind segment, playoff edition, where I tell you who I believe is going to win the Super Bowl. So stay tuned. If you don't want to listen to any of this, I want to put in the hyperlink so you can look at and go to the exact time where I start talking about who's winning the Super Bowl. And then you can yell at me all you want or stop listening altogether. It's up to you. So, without further ado, let's get it started. Four teams fired their head coach in the last week. The Cleveland Browns fired their head coach, Freddie Kitchens. The Giants fired their head coach, Pat Shermer. The Panthers fired earlier on in the season, they fired Ron Rivera, who is now coaching the Washington Redskins. After they had fired Jay Gruden, not even halfway through the season. And finally, Jason Garrett will not be given his contract extension with the Dallas Cowboys, meaning he will no longer be the coach for that team, which means they will be moving on. They're taking it slow, but he's no longer going to be the coach. So what does this all mean? Let's look at every position here. For the Browns, the simple answer was disorderly. That's the best way to explain what happened when Kitchens was hired. They decided to sign a guy who had been on the previous staff with Hugh Jackson, big mistake, and let him become the head coach. Now, the entire time, he never won over the respect of his players, the trust of his players, even the guys they signed. And because of that, there was a loss in connection, in trust, all of it. It was just missing. It was plain. So for that, the Browns could never get the ball rolling and get in the position they wanted to. It never happened. They, we were so hyped up saying this is going to be a Super Bowl team, I bought into it. I even said it was going to happen. I said the Browns are going to make the Super Bowl. They were going to make a run for it. Freddie Kitchens getting coach of the year. Yes, that was an actual prediction. And I was just so focused and convinced that the Browns were going to do it. And it didn't happen. It just didn't happen. So that is something we all, a lot of us fell for. Those in the AFC North who play them every year, they weren't surprised. Honestly, I, I don't know. It was just Freddie Kitchens lost the dynamic. And he the Browns now have to pray they don't lose any of those players they have and that talent to other teams whether it's demanding trades, hitting free agency, not wanting to resign, all these things. Players exercising their options. I mean, this is what happened. So the only way to explain Freddie was disorderly. Pat Shermer, 
New York Giants. Um, the one word I can use to explain that is... Uh, it's tough to pinpoint exactly what it is because Pat Shermer had a lot of flaws that McAdoo didn't have. And I think it was just... I could probably say the answer is bad time. Bad timing. That would probably be the words I would use to explain this because when you talk about timing and everything and just when he came in and took over this Giants team, they just lost Tom Coughlin a few years ago. Their most trusted coach who won them two Super Bowls. And then they had Ben McAdoo, who they expected to live up to that as close as he could. He couldn't do that in the two seasons. You have some pretty big shoes to fill. And Pat McAdoo made a lot of mistakes in the structure of the team. And so did the GM. After firing the GM and getting rid of that head coach, they took you in. They took in Shermer. Pat Shermer comes in, and he's stuck in a system that's broken. He doesn't have the cap space to get what he wants. He doesn't have the tools necessary to build a team right. The coordinator she hired didn't do the job right. I mean, you heard my rant a few episodes back where I just went in on the offensive line coach for the Giants for not preparing their players against the, when they played the Jets. That's what I mean. It was a bad staff. It was an indecent situation where you just didn't have the resources you needed to do your job right. And, he, and they didn't. Pat Shermer was set to fail. And unfortunately, that's what happens. It's different from what the Browns went through, where Kitchens was set up for success and he didn't meet the expectations. Shermer was put in under the, under the guise of high expectations for what they were advertising as large potential, which there was. But the problem was that ownership just doesn't do it right. They didn't build the team right. They didn't make the payments or as in they just didn't get the players they needed. So, for example, you got rid of Olivia Vernon, you wasted a year of Eli Manning, and, and, and the fact where you actually took him out of the game and put somebody else in to take his spot as a starter, that's a lack of trust. I can't, I can't go with somebody that does that. And not only that, it was for Geno Smith. You drafted a rookie quarterback this year to help ail that, and he's a very good quarterback. I will give him that. Dave Gettleman did a great job in this draft, no matter what you Giants fans say. He did a lot. And you got to give credit. Give Gettleman time. I'm sure he's going to impress a lot of you. Pat Shermer now had everything he needed except a strong receiver. He got Darius Slayton. He's been a star. He's going to stay there for a long time. Sterling Shepard just wasn't there. Sterling Shepard didn't do what he had to do to make the system work because he was always hurt. And when a player's always battling injuries, you can't really work with that. Evan Ingram, who they drafted... Three years ago under McAdoo, instead of Patrick Mahomes, y'all know the story. Evan Engram always hurt. Again, can't help Jones succeed. The team can't succeed if conditioning can't get the players healthy and keep them healthy or get them to recover at a good pace. All of a sudden, your defense is ineffective and hasn't been able to improve properly, and now you're seeing your offense stalling where Saquon Barkley, your stud who you saw, who you drafted two years ago, is no longer performing at that level this season. Although he passed over 1,000 yards rushing, he didn't perform it at the level he could have. He could have done a lot more. If it wasn't for that big rushing day he had two weeks ago, he would not have even been close to 1,000 yards rushing. 
this was just a setup for failure, and the Giants owners set it up as potential. You have what you need to succeed when they really didn't, and it put Shermer in a bad spot. Next thing you know, he's got a worse record in two years coaching than Ben McAdoo. From that point on, it was you had to fire Shermer. Not just be not because he was a bad coach or that he hired the bad a bad staff, which he did, but more or less because you didn't want to see the man suffer anymore from what the ownership was doing to them. So if there was two words to explain it, it would be bad timing. That's what it is. Then we go into the next one, which is Ron Rivera. Ron Rivera got fired by Carolina. To me, that was completely just, it, sh- it stunned me. It was stunning. I couldn't believe it. They went 5-7 and seven and they fired him. It made no sense. So if there was one word to describe what that firing, I would say disrespectful. Now, I know it's really harsh of a word to use. But I really do mean it. The Carolina Panthers absolutely disrespected Ron Rivera by firing him when the season wasn't completely lost at 5-7. and seven. The man brought you to four... You know, I'm not even going to go into it. I'm just going to say it. I'll save that for when we get into the necessary and unnecessary firings. Ron Rivera changed the image of the Panthers. Under the previous coaches, they didn't get what they wanted. They wanted to make themselves something that had to be messed with. And in Ron Rivera's time with the Panthers, he did that. Time in and time out, again. But it, but once his star quarterback was starting to, was beginning to undergo surgeries and deal with an injury bug, which has been plaguing him the last few seasons, it's tricky because you didn't expect it to happen. So now you have to draft the future and expect that to help your team. And unfortunately, they didn't prepare for that properly. Kyle Allen, great backup, not a starter QB. I take back what I said from back early on in the season. Kyle Allen is not a starting quarterback. He's a backup. The kid is good. He's just not consistently good, and that's what makes you a backup. You just do the job when they need you to. And you can't keep that at the same level when you're a starter. So, Kyle Allen... I'm sorry, man. You really aren't a starting quarterback. And because he had to do with that issue of having some a backup reliable like that, it wasn't working. CMC was working at a high level he always has been since he came into this league and started playing for the Panthers. The receiving game was somewhat working. The passing game was definitely in the lower ends among NFL teams a season. The run game was up there. The defense was missing a little bit. They were a little lackluster, but what I mean by that is they brought in guys that were older rather than invest in younger teams. That was an issue. When you see that, that becomes a major problem. If you don't invest in the youth, there's going to be problems, and it's just bound to happen eventually. So for this defense, that was eventually going to happen. Gerald McCoy, that's a veteran. You don't want that veteran taking up the space of a guy who could develop in that time as a starter. It's, it's different. From that point on, McCoy should have been used as a veteran guide, not as this big starting point on the line to help be a run stopper in the interior. Not going to happen. He's 30-something he's now. He's about 33. Not You can't have that anymore. 
it's, it's done with. It's done with. So by not doing that, you see a difference. You see a group of guys who are just older and don't have that peak athletic ability that they should. And that slows down a team. And that's what slowed down the Panthers. And then when you have a backup quarterback trying to act like a starter who's going to take over this team, that's another issue. So all in all, you got to think about this. I don't know if that was the best decision to fire Rivera because of the situation he was in. That seems more like what the GM did, not him. I'm sure he wanted to invest in his young guys, but he didn't get the chance to because the GM probably overruled him, and that's what caused his downfall. Rivera did a lot for that team, and the fact that they got rid of him is disrespectful, but I'm glad he's with Washington because Washington needs that culture and attitude in there. I heard that in the first couple of days of being there, he got rid of, he started emptying out the stuff in the, in the locker rooms, which is like the ping pong tables and all the fun stuff and games he used to play while they were in there. He got rid of it all. He got rid of it to set, a, to set, create a new mindset that basically said, we're here to work. We're not here to mess around. We're here to make this team great. That's what it is. It's nothing else like that. It's simple as that we're making this team great. We're going to make us relevant again. And that is who he, what he did for the Panthers. He made them relevant again by bringing them to a Super Bowl and making Cam Newton a star in the league. Again, this was five years ago, but the notion still applies. So, disgraceful and disrespectful is what describes the firing of Ron Rivera. Cowboys firing Jason Garrett, technically firing, not firing, whatever you want to call it. Jason Garrett's removal as Cowboys head coach can be summed up in one word. Overdue. And I know a lot of Cowboy fans were just like, hell yeah. But, you know, it's true. It's overdue. You had a bunch of seasons where you went 8-8 eight and eight and finished at 500. You had the chance to use all the talent you had available because Jerry Jones was willing to spend all the money it took to bring a championship back to Dallas. And Garrett did not execute right with his staffing. And that affected him a lot. Think about it. Jason Garrett had Tony Romo. He had Sean Lee. He had Des Bryant. He had Jason Witten for 10 years. He has Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, Amari Cooper, Cole Beasley. I believe at one point he had Miles Austin. He had that Dallas offensive line that was impenetrable in the 2010s. You really didn't see their rating go below like a 15th overall in the league on that offensive line. They were great. They're going to make all decade team with two of those players. And yet with all that talent, you couldn't produce. You couldn't pull out a ring. You got playoff appearances, but you couldn't get a ring. You couldn't finish the job. And when that happens, I can't take you seriously as a coach anymore. You're not getting what you need. I don't care if you make the playoffs again. If you make the playoffs and you can't come out with the ring, and you've been there four times before as a head coach, and you've been there for nine years, I can't have you stay. You're gone. 
if you're out in the NFC Championship round, if you don't even make, if you don't make it to the Super Bowl, you are fired. If you make it to the Super Bowl, then we'll have a discussion about it. Otherwise, you are out. He was held on for way too long, and this was why it was overdue. Doesn't matter where they ranked, because keep in mind, Dallas had one of the best passing off, had the best passing offense in the league, had a great running back who went over a thousand yards once again. They had a receiving core that worked their tails off this season. Michael Gallup, Amari Cooper. I mean, come on. And then the defense was in the middle. It was average in the league. And even though it was average, you still got a, you were one of the highest scoring offenses in the league. You were in the middle when it came to defense. That's still enough to make you a playoff contending team. Yet you still finished 8-8. Eight and eight. Wow. Honestly, it was it had to happen. It was no choice. That's what I mean by when, when I say it's overdue. So, Jason Garrett, your firing was, in one word, overdue. Now let's get into the details. Which one was the least necessary, the most unnecessary firing? I'm picking Ron Rivera. For the Panthers. You guys heard my spiel. I'm telling you again. Ron Rivera did not deserve to be fired. None whatsoever. The injuries that he had to deal with made everything difficult. Think about it. You lose Cam Newton. You're dealing with old guys playing on the offensive line that aren't producing. The only bright spot on that defense really was, again, Brian Burns was the bright spot as a linebacker. And James Bradbury, but again, he didn't even make the all-pro list this year, so. He, but you also have to look at his accomplishments, what he's done as well. He won Coach of the Year twice since he joined the Panthers. He had three straight division titles from 2013 to 2015, the season they went to the Super Bowl. I mean, and then over his time and over eight seasons, because he was fired in, the middle, fired in the middle of his ninth, he went, his record was 76-63-1. He had one tie, 63 losses, and 76 wins. That is a very good record for, for a coach. Very good. And he was 5-7 when he was fired. Now, if, I'm, if, if I may say so myself, I believe you don't fire a coach until the end of the season. You want to make sure he finishes the year and let it go. If you're confident he's not it and you've got belief in another coordinator on his staff... That is different. You can fire the coach and keep the, the staff and promote the coordinator there. That you can do. But if you're just getting rid of a coach midseason, either you are really, really pissed off at him or you're looking to hire somebody else. And they fired him midseason. It made no sense. And, that's un, and that was just the breaking point for me. That was... Unnecessary. You could have waited till the end of the year. But now you're doing it in the middle of the season. That's not only disrespect to the fans. This is an abomination. And insulting. It's not fair to them. If you were to do it at the end of the season, different story. You did it mid-season. When you still had a chance to make playoffs. You weren't out of it yet. And that's why I'm saying that it was the least deserved. 
As for the one that should have happened sooner, I talked a lot about Jason Garrett, and I'm pretty sure you think I'm going to pick Jason Garrett. Nope. No, not Jason Garrett. I'm going to take Freddie Kitchens for the Browns. What I mean by it, didn't, it had to happen sooner, I mean, let me. the only way to explain it is, again, when your players don't trust you and don't respect you, you shouldn't be coaching the team. That simple. You should be moving on. You shouldn't be there anymore. You got to go. It's over. Simple as that. Now, other things I believed. He finished the season 6-10 and 10 with a team and a receiving core with two receivers that went over 1,000 yards. You had a running back who finished in the top three rushing yards in the league. I mean, come on. You had the offense working and the defense was all right. Why did you lose 10 of those games? You shouldn't have lost more than five with that team. But you lost 10. Again, poor management, poor coaching. I mean, it's just a misuse of talent. Don't forget, though, although there were injuries, that doesn't constitute or give an excuse to Freddie Kitchens in his first season making these mistakes with everything he had to win. And I think what really led to it all making it as he needed to go was that his coaching style made him too controlling and overbearing over his coordinators, his staff, and his players. I, if I'm a coach, if I'm a head coach and I have my staff, I'm going to hire people I trust. Someone I can rely on to make the best choices and help the team win. And I want to put my full trust into them to win and help us. If I believe he's doing the job wrong, I either talk to him about it, and if it continues, I fire him. I don't take over. And as a leader, this is just basic leadership skills here. You don't take over someone else's job. You can show them what to do and give them demonstrations and be a guide. But you also cannot do the job for them. And that's what Kitchens did. Kitchens did the job. And what I mean by that is, in case you didn't hear the reports that came out, he was calling the offensive plays all season. As if he was still an offensive coordinator. By not getting into the mentality that he's a leader now and he has to run this team, he caused this team to stall in their development. And that, only, and that not only got him fired, but it got John Dorsey fired who I still believe should not have been fired. He brought everything they needed to win. It was just a bad choice in coaching. In this case, Freddie Kitchens had to go sooner. I mean, you could you I mean, you could have probably done it mid-season after everything you saw, but at the end of the day, he finished the season, he was out. Simple as that. And I support the decision wholeheartedly. And I now pray that Odell Beckham, Jarvis Landry, and all the other guys over there that want out of Cleveland decide to stay. Because I'm, and I apologize for you and for these coaches' behavior and how they, and how they treated you on that team. It was unnecessary and it was wrong. You guys deserve better than that. And I hope that Haslam 
picks the right guys to take over. And you guys have a bright future in Cleveland. Let's just hope Haslam does it right and gets the right guys in there to help you win and get there. So yeah, most deserved firing was Freddie Kitchens, least deserved Ron Rivera. So that's it on the coaching carousel. We're still waiting on more reports in case other coaches get fired. Still in the hot seat. Don't know yet. Which now brings us to the wild card round weekend. So happy. I'm so happy playoff time's around because this is when I get so excited and I get all jittery. This is what gets me happy and hype. I get excited when playoffs come in because you never know what's going to happen. So, I'll start off with this. The first game I'm going to I'm going to do Saturday's games, I'm going to do Sunday's games. That's how I'm going to break it down. And at the end of my breakdowns I'm going to tell you who wins the game. The Bills are playing the Texans in Houston. The Bills are the fifth seed and the Texans are the fourth seed. The Texans are getting JJ Watt back. So that's a big help to them, gives them a big boost in providing pressure onto Josh Allen. Great addition, great Timing for him to come back. Now, from the statistics side, let's talk about it this way. The Bills' run game has been the biggest bright spot on this team outside of their defense. The offense runs on the performance of Singletary and Gore. If they get stuffed, the team stalls. The Bills have also given up, and on the note of defense, the Bills give up the second least points in the NFL. Now, when I put into perspective how great that is, it's great. Overall, that defense is ranked like third overall. They got a great run defense, legitimate pass defense, as in like top 10. And, I mean, how do you beat that? When you're going up, a team that's, when you're going up against a team that you're facing off against Tredavious White, Tredavious White versus DeAndre Hopkins, I mean, how could you not love that battle? It's going to be great. Now, from there... You got to look into it from here now. Great thing we're talking about the defense and how they can stop the Texans. But it doesn't help when your offense ranks 23rd in points scored. Out of 32 teams, you rank 23rd. And it's not mainly because of the run game, it's your pass. The pass game is not working. As great as Allen is talent wise, and as great of a season as John Brown has been having, where he surpassed 1,000 yards receiving, I still got to put out there, because, you know, I have to, that they're not throwing for a lot of yards, guys. They're not throwing for a lot of yards. Their offense is, again, carried by the run game. Their offense is mediocre. That's as simple as I could put it. They have some talent there that they can use. But if they want to win this game, they got to use it right. So if the Bills want to win this game, that pass game needs to step up here. It needs to step up. The passing game needs to step up. And the reason why is because, think about it, they're 24th overall in the NFL as a pass defense. So that would be, and this would technically be the week to do it. So this is definitely an advantage week for the Bills. And why? Because the Texans' passing defense is ranked 28th in yards allowed, and the pass defense itself is ranked 29th. This is the week to exploit that. This is the week 
where you go in and you pummel them. You abuse it, the ball deep downfield. This is the week to do it. You got, a, you got an injury-prone secondary that is just riddled with problems. You can definitely take advantage of that. So Josh Allen, look to focus on routes downfield that go for at least 15, 20 yards. Look for those plays because that's where you're going to see the mistakes. The injuries to the secondary with Jonathan Joseph still battling an injury and Deshaun Gibson out for the rest of the year, this is big. This is your advantage point. You're still going to see Colesby Beasley take those small routes underneath to get them a few yards, but expect John Brown to have a big day. And he's gonna, and you're gonna have to look at Dawson Knox more because the Texans are a hard-hitting team, and you want to use your guy outside of blocking situations. So maybe provide a little fake scenarios, maybe on play actions, and have the tight end run a post route to the right side. Make make the safeties have to come up. If you're on that play action, you have the and you have the safety come up to cover up Dawson Knox's post, and then that will leave your receiver on the outside time to run his slant, a nice deep slant. Having Hargreaves cover him, who's not good at man coverage, and take advantage, you could easily get first downs. That's what I'm talking about. Those little, de- those little things. Incorporate more deception into your passing game, and you're going to go far. If they can pull that off, the Bills are in business. They could actually go farther than we think in the playoffs. As for the Texans, though, got to look at it this way. The Texans are ranked 19th in points allowed and 14th in points for. So, again, mediocre on both ends. One of the big things that the Texans have to worry about is that offense because you're going to have to rely on Hopkins and Duke Johnson to push this, to push the game, the offense forward. Because we, don't, we know Will Fuller isn't 100%. He's going to come in, play still with an injury, and you know he's not going to be 100%. Same thing for Kenny Stills. You want to make sure that Hopkins is used more and is the focal target. Because you know you don't want to make the other guys have to suffer and make their injuries worse. Make Hopkins the main guy to throw to, which they know you're going to do. And use Kenny Stills and Will Fuller on shorter routes. Plus, when you create that deception there that you're going to throw to Hopkins... When you do it enough times, they're going to constantly focus on going to Hopkins. So if you do a little pump fake over to Hopkins on a short route, you can do a quick and then pull back and then do a pull back and a quick release out on the right side maybe to Will Fuller going deep. That's what I mean. You These guys are injured, but that doesn't mean you can't still use them in bigger scenarios. Just don't over, just don't use them too much. You want to make sure that they are fully healthy and not pushing their limits too far. So, that's what the Texans have to do. Now, besides that, what's going to make this game even harder for the Texans to win is that the Bills are now going to have Lorenzo Alexander coming back to play at the linebacker position with Matt Milano. It's going to be it's going to be fun to watch, trust me. And then they're going to also get Jerry Hughes back on the defensive line putting him on the edge with Shaq Lawson, who has been a beast this season. So this is just going to add a big boost to that defense and help give them that edge they didn't have. So now we can expect the Bills to put a lot more pressure on Watson, which is going to lead to more crazier throws. So all in all, I believe that the Bills will get the edge and beat the Texans in a close 
low-scoring game. So I'll repeat that again. My prediction for the Buffalo Bills-Houston Texans game is that the Buffalo Bills, as the wildcard team, will beat the Houston Texans at NRG Stadium in Houston. It'll be close and it's going to be low scoring. But the Bills are going to win. Now, let's move to the other game in the AFC. The Titans versus the Patriots. Tennessee is going to have to travel to New England to Gillette Stadium to take on Tom Brady. And they all too familiar scene. Now, I know a lot of people are saying already, I've seen a lot of people say that the Titans have this in the bag. I've seen people say that you can't doubt Pelly off Tom Brady. Both points are ve- are valid. Now, what do I mean by that? Tom Brady is different in playoff mode. You can't, it's hard to beat him in the playoffs. Very difficult. In terms of the Titans winning, it's a very big likelihood because the Titans have just been dominant in the run game, and although the Patriots' defense has been great, they haven't been playing good teams. The strength of schedule compared to the Titans for the Patriots is lower. The games that the Patriots have won have been easier games than the games that the Titans have had to play. So, let's break it down starting with the Patriots because we'll save the Titans for last. So, the Patriots have injuries on defense that could really hurt them. They have injuries involving Jason McCourty, Terrence Brooks, and Jamie Collins, who are all listed as questionable for the matchup, which means even if they were to play, they're going to be, they're not going to be 100%. So you have to think about that too and take that into account. If they're not 100%, it gives the Titans an opportunity to exploit that pass defense, who has been so good all season. We already know Stephon Gilmore is going to lock up A.J. Brown and find ways to make the rookie create crucial mistakes. And this is where the Titans will have to refer to their other receivers and their tight ends as well. But let's keep going on the Patriots' note here. Now, the only way I can see the Patriots winning this game is if they target the matchup between Edelman and Adore Jackson. So the Titans have injuries on their own. They have their own injuries involving their corners. Keep in mind, Malcolm Butler's out for the year, so he can't play. So Adoree Jackson's the main corner. Adoree Jackson's going to have to take on Edelman. And although Edelman's a small guy, he can easily beat out Adoree Jackson with his speed and just the quick cuts he can make. As much as I don't believe Edelman's a Hall of Famer outside of his playoff record, I do believe he is talented and he can beat out Adoree Jackson because of his veteran experience, in the playoffs especially. Now, on top of that, the Patriots need to get Michelle, Sony Michelle, active in the run game. And the only way you can do that is if you pray Marcus Cannon, the offensive tackle, is good to go. He's great in run-blocking schemes, especially where you have to shift him out of position and run, and run to the outside to pick up a linebacker on the block. That is especially big. I'm telling you, Marcus Cannon, if he doesn't play, big problems here for Brady and for the running backs. He, you better, They have to pray he's healthy. Now, as well as that, the number one thing at the end of the day for the Patriots to do is get pressure on Tannehill. Number one thing. Tannehill has done so well because the pressure has not been immense and hard-hitting on him. 
As, although that Titans offensive line is not good. It's not bad either. It's right in the middle of like, like the average offensive lines and the bad offensive lines. It's like in the middle of that. So it's like kind of bad. That's what it means. And I know my, my vocabulary right now I'm using isn't specifically appropriate or uh, professional, but I'm telling you that it's like this offensive line isn't good, but it's not bad. So it's like average, if you want to use that then. Or lackluster, maybe that's a better word to use. So the offensive line ranks in the bottom half of the teams, so because of that, you can definitely create pressure, get get advantage of Conklin, maybe use some blitz formations on the, in the box sets, use that to kind of confuse Ryan Tannehill, uh, make it harder to use the receivers that are healthy, and that should help. That should help them and help the Patriots lock up a win. Now let's shift to the Titans here. The biggest problem for the Titans here, once again, is that they are depleted at receiver, which is now going to hurt the performance for Tannehill. Or could. We don't know what's going to happen. He will not have Adam Humphreys, his top guy he uses in the slot, and he will not have Khalif Raymond, who he also uses on the outside as a backup role to Tajay Sharp. So they're now depleted not only at the receiver position, but in the depth itself. So that because the only receivers I could tell you moving forward are AJ Brown and Tajay Sharp. Tajay Sharp. I don't. I'm sorry. I don't know. It's hard to say that name a little bit. Tajay Sharp. Very. Those are the two guys that he's going to focus on. Which is where I say, incorporate Jonu Smith more. Get Jonu Smith the tight end more involved in the offense. Make him maybe have him in situations for play action. Pick up a block. Push him back a little bit. Then do a swim move over the top and then run run a post-in route. So that means he runs up off that, off that swim move, he takes about 10 steps up the middle, and then cuts into the interior of the field going to the opposite sideline. That's why I call it a post-in. So an in-post, if you want to call it that way either, is just basically he runs a post route closer inside than he would if he was running from the outside. So I'm saying Jody Smith does it off a block as Tannehill runs a runs a play action where he hands it off to Henry on the right side, fakes it, spins around, spins to go, run left side, and he can catch Jonu Smith running the post and throw it across, throw it, throw it over to him, running. Easy play, get a get a nice first down, nice chunk of yardage. That's an example of using Jonu Smith on a larger scale. So think of it that way. Jonas Smith has to be used in more situations because they don't have Delaney Walker either. So if the Titans want to win, they got to incorporate Jonas Smith, and they also got to hope that Henry can get over 100 yards. Like I said, this Patriots run defense is very good. So because it's so good, you need to make sure that Henry gets everything he needs, maybe use more fullback sets, and um, make holes and open up holes so that Henry can at least get nice chunks of yardage to help advance the ball and keep the pressure off Tannehill. As long as Tannehill is under pressure, they can't win the game, and he's always going to be panicking, and it's only a matter of time before he makes a mistake, as of every quarterback. Tannehill is the highest-rated quarterback going into the playoffs. Highest-rated quarterback. You could possibly see him win a Super Bowl MVP if the Titans make it. Again, 
Big if. But the other thing I noticed is Arthur Smith, if you don't know who that is, that is the offensive coordinator for the Titans. He, he should continually mix up the game plan to keep the Pats defense on the toes. So that would mean run a cup. That means run a nice run, a, run, a, run, do a run play, for example, on first down, up the gut like they would expect. Second down, do it again. Third down, do a um. Here, what you're gonna do is you're gonna do a play action on the same play, same exact play. Switch it to a play action. Have have a crossing route done from the outside, and have and when you do that, let's say because let's say also that Henry is getting stuffed. So now you've got like a third and third and five. Okay, so now use a play action on the same thing. So I'm saying a halfback gut, which means he's just running up on the right side of the, of the center as it should be planned, laid out. He fakes it. He takes it. He runs it backwards, comes back, sets his feet out deeper outside the pocket, more of in a shotgun formation, really. And you got the two main receivers crossing. You're probably not going to get them. His secondary target is going to be Derrick Henry on a little hook. He comes, he comes up the gut after they realize he doesn't have the ball. Comes through them, gets just behind, maybe about six, seven yards, which is enough to get the first down. Make a quick cut around and stand there, wait for the ball. If you see the tenant, if he sees he's under pressure, he can improvise, cut out left. If he wants, he can create a little route where he runs right. So that would mean instead of running that little hook, that point where he would hook, he would instead cut and run towards the sideline on the outside, on the, going towards the right. These little things, he can use that to drop it into that drag that, that drag route or Henry's route. So Henry still gets the ball, but it's no longer as a run. He gets it in a passing situation. These little confuse, confusing moments you can create could help out a lot. So that's a big thing for the Titans. So all in all, I believe the Patriots are going to win this in a close one. Patriots win it. Done. Over with. It's going to be close. Like I said, this is going to be a contested game. Not like what, what when Mariota went up against him a few years ago. Not the same. Titans will not win this game. Patriots win it in a close one. Which now brings us to the NFC. Vikings taking on the Saints here. Big note here. It's going to be in Louisiana. And the Saints will not have Eli Apple. So, to my knowledge, Eli Apple is not playing on Sunday. This could mean that there's going to be some depth issues if Jenkins or Lattimore were to have some sort of setback with an injury. So that means they'd have to change formations to accommodate, maybe incorporate more safeties into them. Not going to work well for these defenses. So it's a big issue if Eli Apple's a no-go for Sunday. So with that being said, I guess we're jumping straight into the Saints. So the Saints have to rely on... Zone blitz situations. I know I'm, it seems like I'm not really going deep into this. And I'm not really going really too much into the Saints itself. But I'm just going to go into what, how they can win this. The Saints can win if they rely on zone blitz situations. Because if they want to beat the Vikings, they got to make sure they go after that pass defense. Okay? So, the big thing is, Kirk Cousins does not do well in primetime games. We know this. 
and he's not good when he's under pressure. So if he doesn't have time to get the ball out, he's going to panic. He's going to make really bad mistakes. So a great example of this, you have um, the Saints would bring up, let's say, Marcus Williams in a strong safety blitz. So he would use that, and he would come up, make a little make a little deceiving play. If he sees something off, he can drop back into a spy situation. And then from there, you watch Cousins drop back. And by using that zone blitz situation, doing that would really help out a lot. Because then that point, Kirk Cousins doesn't know what to do. He's got Stephon Diggs, he's got Adam Thielen, he's got all these great receivers. But now he's panicking because he doesn't know what to do because he doesn't know what the defenders are going to do. He's lost. And in that cloud, and then that clouded moment, that's when Cameron Jordan can come up and make a big play off the edge and hit him and drop him for, for a sack. Either that or he's going to let that ball go to a bad route where it's going to get picked. That's a big moment into how we can get it. So you also want to think about this in another, in another way. The Vikings can't don't have a very good run defense. Their run defense is very good. And also, the Saints are 12th in turnovers in the league. So they can use that advantage of being able to force turnovers to help them. And that's what I mean. By doing these own blitz situations, they'll get an advantage over the Vikings. As for what I'm seeing here involving Alvin Kamara, he's been very quiet this season. He didn't even reach 1,000 yards. I believe he was short. I think he only made 800-something yards. And uh, you can't run the ball effectively if Zach Line can't play. Now, that's a big thing I've heard, too. I'm not sure if Zach Line is going to play. He's the fullback. And when you use him in the fullback set, it really helps Kamara because Kamara's not really strong power back. Alvin Kamara is more of that speed guy, gets you off the edge. He's more of the, he's better off in like a West Coast offense. Not really in what he's not really in a power situation. Their power back was Mark Ingram, but he's no longer on the team. He's with the Ravens. So Zach Line, if he can't play, they're in a lot of trouble. That means Kamara can't run the ball, which means Breeze is gonna be running, throwing the ball all day. And then that's gonna tire him out and it's gonna put them in a in worse situation. Now, for the Vikings here, they're not expected to have Anderson Deho, Stephen Weatherly, or Mackenzie Alexander ready for Sunday, which means they're losing two that means they're losing a big corner there in Mackenzie Alexander. Which means Holton Hill and Mike Hughes would be the backup corners in the situations where Trey Waynes couldn't go or the other starter. So this would mean from here that the Saints can really use that to their advantage if they run it right. Because Michael Thomas is going to be out there all day. He's going to be catching passes like a maniac. Got to find a way to isolate him too. So they can win if they continue to use zone disguises with the safeties to force Breeze to misread defense. That's what I noticed. When Breeze makes a bad decision, it's because he didn't read the defense right or he didn't make an extra read. So that's what I mean. When you run like something like a, a disguise where, you're going, where it looks like you're going to do cover four and you're going to back him up, which means you can get him up short, and then the disguise falls apart and it turns into a cover two man, that's what I mean. Watching the audible happen. And then if Breeze doesn't catch up on that, that's an advantage to the Vikings, who can now use that man coverage to pick up. That's what I mean. When you create those cover disguises situations, that 
is going to create a lot of mistakes for the quarterback, and he can and the Vikings can take advantage, get turnovers, open up opportunities for Dalvin Cook to run the ball. Big thing, they got to focus on that too. So at the end of the day, I know I just made like a, a whole answer spiel, wasn't really focused for the Vikings, and the reason why is because no matter what, the Saints win it. The Saints are going to win the game. Cousins can't win primetime games. That simple. He always proves to be missing that big star factor when it comes to primetime games. So, sorry, Kirk Cousins, you're out. Saints won. This leads up to the final game now. The big game, the one that everybody's writing off, Seahawks-Eagles. Everyone's writing it off because, you know, the Eagles, they're 9-7. and seven. They won a division. They got their home game at Lincoln Financial Field. Yeah, okay. You need to understand here. The Eagles are a very good team at home. That evens the playing field. If you ask me, this is a 50-50 chance game. you got to look at the statistics here. you got to look beyond the common knowledge and what the fans are saying. you got to start thinking for yourself. Don't go into that mob mentality with the fans or the analysts. you got to start thinking for yourself. I'm here to provide you information and my take on what they need to do and other ideas. I'm not telling you what to believe. That's a big difference here for me from other analysts. I'm going to give you the information. I'm going to give you ideas. And then you're going to make decisions on your own and formulate your own thoughts. That's my. That's the thing. So let's get that out of the way. So I really do believe this is a 50-50 game. The Eagles, obviously, we know they're dealing with a depleted receiving core and that it could be without their star rookie running back, Miles Sanders. Miles Sanders dealt with is dealing with an ankle injury. When he was asked about it, he said he should be good to go. But just in case, he's still listed as questionable. In the event he has a setback and can't play, they're in a lot of trouble, the Eagles. So, in this situation, Wentz is going to have to be the key to everything. If it, is, if it wasn't for Wentz, this passing offense would not be where it is. Even with all the injuries they've suffered, this passing offense is still just on the borderline of number 10 in the league. Not a joke, I looked it up. It's like number 10, number 11, around there. And that's because of Wentz himself pushing this game so much farther and this passing game so much farther. In order for them to win, obviously you got to protect Wentz at all costs. Wentz is your team. Lose Wentz, lose the game. Josh McCowan ain't saving your game. So again, lose Wentz, you lose everything. Now, with this, this means the Eagles can win. They can win. But only if they can lock down DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. That means create situations where the corners like Jalen Mills would have to come up and they would have to keep press coverage on DK Metcalf. Maybe not in man-to-man situations, but maybe in others. More in maybe zone coverages where you drop back, maybe about to uh, the first down marker, about 10 yards. Keep an eye on him. If he makes a cut, you follow him. And then if you see he's looking his direction, jump it. Like that stuff. Stay on them the entire game. Now, another way is if they play more to the line of scrimmage on runs. So, a lot of things I noticed with the Eagles is that when they're dealing with a team that's a pass that's pass heavy, they're going to play farther back. But they have Marshawn Lynch and they plan on using him more. Same thing with Eric Homer. If that's even, nope, Travis Homer. Correction. I'm thinking of Hosmer from baseball. Travis Homer. Play up on him. They're going to be using them a lot more than you think. So you've got to be ready for that. On first down situations and especially on second down. First and second down, 
Play your linebackers up closer. If you see switching it out to make it a wider set, you drop them back. Easy calls, easy reads. Gotta do it. That's the only way you're going to keep them from having big plays happen. Play more to the line. As for the Seahawks, though, they're going to have a much-needed boost to the defense in both the secondary and on the line. They're getting back Quan- They're getting back Jadavion Clowney and Quandre Diggs. Quandre Diggs is back to work in the safety position. Yes, great thing for them. It means that they can get more pressure now and use them in more sets and use more scenarios properly, more di- different plays to create more pressure on Wentz and abuse that offensive line. One of the big things I noticed that Lynch's experience is going to help um, Travis Homer exploit the Eagles and make large breakaway plays. So if Lynch is noticing a tendency with the Eagles, he's going to tell Homer so Homer can go in and he can just wiggle his way through and do and pull that deception and use that crazy speed he's got to get around and make plays happen, just like Marshawn Lynch used to. So the big thing I took away from this is that the Seahawks can win if Ken Norton decides, who is a defensive coordinator, decides that he's going to run plays that will confuse the inexperienced receivers that the Eagles will have to on staff Sunday. Because keep in mind, they still don't have Nelson Aguilar, no Deshaun Jackson, their main star receivers are not in. This means that if they don't have those star receivers, they're going to be a little on the weaker side. So that's the advantage there for the Seahawks and Ken Norton. That means you force the mistakes out of Greg Ward. I mean, that, that's a big thing. The only veteran you got really in that receiving core right now is Zach Ertz. And Ertz you can handle. Just make sure those receivers make mistakes with their inexperience and lack of starting caliber and playoff time in the playoff. So, as well as that, if Lynch can establish the run with Homer against the Eagles' D-line, which is, you know, Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox, Derek Barnett, they can provide more options for Brian Schottenheimer and Russell Wilson. Brian Schottenheimer is the offensive coordinator for the Seahawks, again, if you aren't aware. As we all know, if the run game works, the passing game will, will work in suit. It will take pressure off, and with the right quarterback, they're going to work hand-in-hand to give them the best chance to win games. So if Lynch and Homer can keep it up, Wilson in the passing, Wilson, Metcalf, Lockett, all those guys, they're going to get, they'll do their job and they'll win the game. So at the end of the day, I think this is going to be the most interesting and, and highly watched game of the wild card round. I'm taking the Seahawks in a close one over the Eagles. All these games are going to be close. None of them are going to be outright wins. Seahawks win. So again, just to recap that real quick, I have the Bills beating the Texans, the Patriots beating the Titans, the Saints beating the Vikings, and the Seahawks beating the Eagles. So this brings us to the change my mind topic, as I've got about maybe four minutes left to go here. Here we go. I'm not going to regard the other change of mind topic I posted. None of you guys commented. Still sour about that. Here it is. We want to pick a team that's going to win the Super Bowl. We got to look at teams in every single aspect. You got the Ravens, you've got the 49ers. They seem like favorites to win it. You're watching them. I'm convinced the Ravens will make the Super Bowl. Here's how I have it right now I have the Seahawks beating the Eagles, and with the Saints beating the Vikings, the Saints would have to go and play the Packers 
Well, the Seahawks have to take on the 49ers, who they're used to, who they've played on multiple occasions. They, they beat them once. They lost the second time. Doesn't mean that the Seahawks know how to beat them. So if the Seahawks go in and they're playing at forty in the Kendall at the uh, Levi Stadium, they're going to beat them. I'm convinced the Seahawks can beat them. Now, in that time, you see the Saints beat the Packers. Now you got the Seahawks and the Saints, a wild card team and a third seed facing off in the NFC Championship. I've got the Saints beating the Seahawks because Drew Brees and Michael Thomas is just an unstoppable duo. They move on. Now, they're in the Super Bowl taking on the Ravens. Saints-Ravens, big wild thing. We, we didn't expect the Saints to make it this far. The third seed out of the NFC, they're in the Super Bowl, taking on the number one seed and the number one team in the NFL. And because I know Sean Payton, and because I know John Harbaugh, and I love Lamar Jackson, I love that kid. That kid is good. I wasn't a fan of him at first, but I really like him now. I love that kid, Lamar Jackson. But don't ever doubt that quarterback, Drew Brees. You know where this is going. Saints are going to win the Super Bowl this year. Yes, that is right. Change my mind. Saints win the Super Bowl. New Orleans is taking another one home. Drew Brees is going to have two trophies to his belt. He's going to finish his career on a high note. And Drew Brees will retire after winning that Super Bowl. If you tell me otherwise, I don't want to hear it. Drew Brees is winning the Super Bowl this year. Change my mind. That offense is unstoppable in different ways. You could talk about not having Alvin Kamara there, but when you take on that Ravens team, when you're taking on that Seahawks run defense, you're going to see a different Kamara, and Kamara's going to pop out, and he's going to make a different game out of it. And he's going to be the difference maker late. I'm telling you, you can doubt me now. You could say whatever you want. Drew Brees has taken another one home and putting himself back in the GOAT conversation. Back among the conversation of generational quarterbacks. The Saints will win the Super Bowl. Change my mind. I'll be posting about it and my bracket on Twitter and on Instagram. Which I will give to you now because we have reached the end of the episode. Once again, I am your host, the Sideline Statsman. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at tstatsman and on Instagram at the.sideline.statsman to keep up to date with sports content, especially football right now. And we'll see you next time. And I will be posting up this debate topic. I will be. So keep your eyes peeled. Make sure to hit that follow button. Once again, I'm your host, the Sideline Statsman. We'll see you next time. Have a great day, everybody.